Would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? And we'll be starting a new series today on the church. What does it mean to... What does church mean? What does church mean to you? What does church mean to Christ? What does church mean to Jesus? What does church mean to us 2,000 years later? So we'll be spending the next at least a month, if not more, on the church. I will be speaking out of most of the New Testament. I will speak on what Jesus says about the church, what Paul says about the church, what Peter says about the church, what John says about the church, what the writer of Hebrews says about the church, what Luke the physician says about the church in the book of Acts. And we will go through different aspects and dynamics of what a Christian church is and our role in it. We all have a role in the church. The church is not me. I hope you know that. It is not leadership. The church is us. Uh, I want to start this whole sermon off and this series off with asking a couple of questions. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? I want you to think about that. Is He your personal Lord and Savior? That's a fa favorite concept today. We all like to say that and believe that because He is. If we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we repented of our sins and we know we need salvation and it only comes through Christ and through grace, we are adopted into the family of God and Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. But there's something else I want to add to that because there's a, that could be misunderstood. I would like everybody to stand up with me for a moment. Would you do that? And you tell me what sounds more biblical. And you tell me what sounds even better to your own spirit. Repeat after me. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. is my personal Lord and Savior. Would you repeat now? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. is our personal Lord and Savior. Can you say that with conviction? Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. You may be seated. I say that because it seems that in the culture we live in that it's easy to take Jesus home with us and we remain there, so to speak. And that our hearts can be removed from the fellowship. And that Christianity becomes that personal Lord and Savior thing that we just spoke about. He's mine. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible never speaks to that issue like that. Paul, Christ, all the New Testament writers, the prophets of the Old Testament, they never spoke of this personal relationship. Never. It's always in the context of our relationship. Jesus didn't Christ didn't come and save someone over there and someone else over there and leave them over there. When Christ saves, He brings them into a centrally located place. It's called the church. Where we worship our personal Lord and Savior. The church is the context where we express our gratitude and love for Christ. Of course, I can do that driving the car and worshiping and listening to a sermon. I can do that when I'm repenting and crying over some struggle in our life, when I'm confessing my sin to somebody, when I'm witnessing the gospel to somebody, when I'm crying out to God saying, God, I, I need help in my life. I'm, I'm looking to the hills. Where will my strength come from? I'm worshiping God, but it's all done out of this context. 
that I'm part of the body of Christ. I belong somewhere where my gifts and talents are used. Where people know me, where I'm accountable in my Christian life. That is Christianity. Of course, theoretically, Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. But I want, I want to expel some of that. You know, He's my personal Lord and Savior. I really want us to really grasp what the Bible teaches us, specifically the New Testament, that Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. And I can tell you right now, Satan will do everything and anything to separate people from other Christians. He loves Christians that are separate, even from heart. I can be in the midst of a congregation and still be separate. I can still be removed. Do you understand what I mean? It's easy to be in a crowd and still be what? Isolated. To be in a crowd and be lonely. To be in a crowd and be just one number. Christianity is not meant ever to be that way. We are meant to love and care, to be concerned for each other, to truly carry the burdens of others as much as we would carry our own. So these are the kind of issues I want to address throughout this series, that we want to get a corporate understanding of the church and our position in it as believers. There's no insignificant member of the body of Christ. God has given to each Christian a gift. It's a spiritual gift. Some have more than a gift. Some have several gifts. And those gifts are for the common good of edification to help other Christians. It's the gift of exhortation. It's the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, it's the gift of hospitality. It's the gift of giving, it's the gift of mourning, it's the gift of rejoicing with people. There are so many diverse manifold gifts that God gives to the church to make the church work. There's the gift of administration, we'll go through a lot of these things throughout the series. And to be used in this capacity... And it all makes this all work. This not, does not work on a salary. It's hearts coming together, knitted together for a common purpose, as we sung in the first song today, that God would be glorified in the church. And we're going to read that today. So today's a real introduction into the series. I will be speaking out of Ephesians a little bit. I will give an outline today out of Ephesians later on. But I will go through the same text next week and I will teach out of that. I will teach out of Paul for a while. I will teach out of Peter for a while, like I said. And we will get a well-rounded understanding of what the Christian church is. And then we can, uh, we can make an assessment. Can I ask everybody who is here today and make the assessment where we stand within the Christian church? Can we say with a deep conviction that Christ is our Lord and Savior. Can we say that? Put it this way, should we be able to say that? Well, of course. But God wants to solidify in a spirit of solidarity a greater commitment to Him and the local church. So this is the spark Understanding, it's to give understanding, it's to give insight, but it's also to have all of us. What is our position? Where do we stand? What's going on in our heart? Because everything is about the human heart. Everything. This is what makes Christianity go. So I'm glad that you participated in that little drill. You think you did well. But I want to ask something. Did you see the difference between 
making a statement that Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior, and the difference between Jesus Christ is ours. Didn't it sound magnificent? Wasn't it something that was, a sym- uh, it was a, like a symphony to me when I heard our? Because no one will ever worship alone in heaven, ever. You will worship with every other believer from the Old and New Testament. Let's do that now. This is a microcosm of heaven. That's what we are. We are far from perfected. But when you serve from your heart the Lord and serve the local church and serve other believers, understand something, you taste the reality of heaven. And those who taste that are blessed human beings. You get a foretaste of heaven. So this is what I'm going to try to establish as the weeks go on. But again, my reason for a series on the church is to have a clear understanding of God's building project. Christ says in Matthew 16 that I will build my church. I will build it. That Christ is engaged in building, constructing. One stone upon the next him being the chief cornerstone, the prophets and the prophets, uh, the apostles and the prophets proclaiming Christ, and that's what we do week in and week out. We proclaim the apostolic faith. We proclaim through the scriptures that faith that was once and for all handed over to the saints so that your faith would rest not on man's wisdom, but on Christ's power to save. That is our objective. And as we go on to... To remove some of these ungodly attitudes of Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior and have this sort of like, you know, he's all mine, 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 mine and, you know, I can basically do whatever I want with him. I can, you know, sort of be aloof, that I can sort of be step separate, I can sort of take a step back and know that God wants to bring us all closer together. This kind of attitude could separate believers. In, in, in a most sensitive way, because a born-again believer is someone who has a new spiritual heart. Another born-again believer is the same person, a different person has the same born-again heart. And that God is doing the same thing in me that He's doing in you. Same thing. He's conforming me into what? He's conforming you into someone else, Moses' image. He's conforming you into Christ. I don't want to do that alone. And I'll tell you why, because the Bible makes it clear that we are pilgrims in this world. Are you familiar with that concept? Are you familiar with the concept that the whole world lies in the power of Satan? Are you familiar that the whole world is in a hostile rebellion against God? Are you familiar that the whole world is a lover of self, a lover of materialism, a lover of pride, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the prideful possessions of life? Do you not know to be a pilgrim in this hostile world, in this moral wasteland, to do it alone is sure failure? Do you understand where I'm going? We need each other desperately. If I want to live for the Lord and enjoy Him, and I do, I can't do it without you. I need Christians in my life desperately. 
You know, I got a, an example of this when we were overseas. And I've, I've experienced this before. When you're overseas and all of a sudden, you know, you, you really don't know anybody that speaks your language. Everybody's from a different place. And the first place we visited in Italy, there was no other Americans there but me and Terry. And then we went to another place after four days and we saw Americans. They spoke our language. They were telling us what was going on. You know, and it was, it was good. It felt comfortable, you know what I mean? It was something nice. They, they knew the kind of jokes we had, you know, and it, there was a familiarity that just, it brought peace. It brought confidence on foreign soil. And even best of it all, we were on a train and there was this young couple and I, Terry didn't say nothing, I didn't say nothing, but I thought maybe these people could be believers. And as we were speaking, we were speaking, all of a sudden, after being in Italy for seven days, we met two other born-again believers, and they got excited, and we started sharing the faith on the train for like an hour ride, you know? And as they left, I said, wow, that was, that was sweet fellowship we had. Yeah. It was sweet, you know what I mean? Because it was, we haven't had it, and, and it came out of nowhere. It was like a blessing. It was a blessing for them, it was a blessing for us, you know? And, and we'll see them again one day. But I say all that because... We need one another. We need to encourage one another. Christians are, put it this way. The Bible says, do not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are corporate salt. We are corporate light. To express God's new covenant of love and compassion, that's what we're called to do. We are called to express God's new covenant, love and compassion in fellowship, whether Jews and Gentiles, male, female, rich, poor, makes no difference. We are called to tear down stereotypes. And I'm going to get into this today and more specifically next week. Like members of a body, mutually dependent on one another. Our unique contributions, just like the foot, as Paul says, needs the hand, and the hand needs the foot, and the eye needs the head. We all need one another. We're all different, but yet we all need one another. Being concerned, not just for our own needs, but for the needs of other people. We are to show genuine love. We are to hate that which is evil amongst us. And we are to embrace that which is good amongst us. We are to love one another with a brotherly affection. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. We are to associate with the lowly, the humble, the meek, the mild, the marginal, the outcast. With genuine concern and admiration. We are called to not just love one another, but forgive each other the way God in Christ has forgiven us. As Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? The answer is obvious. Seventy times seven. You always forgive. We are people that tolerate, not just tolerate, but we are people that are concerned with the faults and failures of other people. We don't isolate ourselves from one another because personality conflicts. When there's personality conflicts that rise up in a Christian's heart, we pray, and we tear down, and we lift up, and we exalt God, and we go the extra mile, and we, we walk that extra mile, and we turn the extra cheek. We do everything, as Paul says, to keep peace with all men, wherever possible. We learn to perfect. In this congregation right here, I, I want you to just, you don't have to turn your heads, but everybody in here is in your life. Don't miss this. To, for you to master the art of forgiveness. 
to master as Christ has forgiven you. We are called to come and almost by God's design irritate one another. That doesn't take too much time. But why? So we can exercise mercy and grace. And as Jesus says, prove to be sons of your Father in heaven. We have mercy on each other. Why? Because God has mercy on us. We esteem others more highly than ourselves. We have been called out of this world to assemble for God himself, to proclaim by lifestyle and by word the excellencies of God's gospel of grace. We are a people zealous for good works. We are a spiritual temple, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. We've become living stones in God's building project. We seek to honor God in our sphere of influence. We are called to hold each other accountable to a holy life. We are a living organism, a microcosm of heaven itself. We're the answer to Christ's prayer. Do you know that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And what do you think that is? That's metaphorical? You think that's theoretical? You and I are the answer to that. Peace on earth in the church. And I'll speak about that out of Ephesians. We're a new creation, spiritual ambassadors, spiritual soldiers, spiritual farmers. We are spiritual athletes who discipline themselves. And we're more than conquerors. We're jars of clay who showed us a passing power to be saved. is not by our good works, but by Christ's redemption and His blood. Even though we're afflicted, we're not crushed. Though we're perplexed, we're not driven to despair. This is the church of God. This is Christ. We're a peculiar people. We don't operate like the rest of the world does. It's this attitude that is the center of Christian ethics and Christian morals. This is the next step after salvation. One might say, I'm saved. What do we do? Love the Lord God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. But this personal attitude of this, I mean this attitude of personal Lord and Savior is sort of like, you know, God and God and God in our heart and you know, not opening up our hearts and so on and so forth has even a, a, a deeper, how can I say, negative side to it. It diminishes the glory of God. And we sang about that today. How is God glorified? I want you to think about that. Okay. I don't mind some answers. But the Bible says that God is glorified in unity. That's how God is glorified. He's glorified, as we're going to read today, in the church and in Christ Jesus. This personal attitude of just, Jesus is all mine, and I can sort of like, sort of be aloof from others, and sort of hold myself at a distance from the needs and concerns of other people. What that does, it diminishes the glory of God. Because that's what not, is what Christ did for us. 
Christ came to rescue us out of this present evil age. He came to seek and to save. He doesn't sit on a bench waiting to be asked. He, he took it upon himself to empty himself. It says that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God demonstrates his love for us in that event. Deep unity in the church. Now listen to this. Between many different people, from diverse backgrounds, socio-economic, intellectual backgrounds, educational backgrounds, financial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. We all come from a, a pretty diverse crowd. It shouldn't work. There's so much diversity that they really have true unity, it should not work, but it does work because it is, because of God. Because we have a, God, a common denominator, and that's Jesus Christ. Understand something, that might not uh, seem much to you, but this biz, biz, biblical wisdom of bringing harmony to a fractured society, listen to this, to bring harmony to a fractured society, politicians have been trying it, military leaders and conquerors have been trying it, Poets and songwriters have been trying it. Hollywood's been trying it. But you can't have it. Only Christ can give the peace and harmony that man desires. Only the gospel can bring everlasting peace. There will be no peace on this earth everlasting. Though men try, and men will try. Rogue man men will try to bring some kind of peace and harmony into this world they just cannot do it, it's left for God and the gospel because only the gospel deals with the problem and that's rebellion deep within each other's heart not just towards one another but rebellion towards God so strong is this that Jesus says to his disciples, listen don't lend to those who can give back for even sinners do that don't invite those two parties that can invite you back Sinners do that. But I'll tell you what you do. Give and don't answer back. Go into the highways and the byways and, and invite the cripple and the lame and the maimed to your feast and to your parties that offer nothing to you. Invite them and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Christian is held to a much grander and higher standard than what this world does. This is the church. This is God's answer. Let me give you a little understanding about this. Heaven's going to be one crazy place. I mean, we're going to have so much diversity with so much great unity and love and concern and compassion all because of the God-man Jesus Christ. God is summing up this whole universe in one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer, not just to sin, it is the answer to hatred. It's the, he's the answer to indifference. He's the answer to apathy and cold-heartedness. Jesus Christ is the answer for this world. And that's who we are. We are His hands and we are His feet. Before I go into Ephesians, I haven't read it yet. I want to give you a definition of the church. I just read some exhortations about church from the New Testament. But 
the Greek word is ecclesia. Now, understand something. It means to be called out. That's what the Greek word means. When we come together, it's we're called out. It means to assemble for a common purpose. In our case, we're called out of the world of darkness to what? Proclaim God and what He has done for us. But it means something else. Outside of the New Testament, it always meant a summons by some authority, I want you to listen to this, to a call to civic duty. They didn't have an option. In the Old Testament, in, 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 in the time of Christ, when the civic authority called you to do something, you showed up. Do you remember what Mary and Joseph did when they were called to what? Mary was pregnant. Right? The census. They didn't have an option. Mary was about to give birth in a week or two. But that was their civic duty. They had to go to the census. They were called out to assemble. Our worship as Christians is not an option. God calls us out as a church to be part of a church. He calls us out to assemble. For us right now, it's Sundays at 4 o'clock. We're called to assemble to give praise and honor to God. It's not optional for Christians to do that. God calls us to that. He puts it in our heart to fellowship and to worship. Amen. That's what the church is. And all of us are summoned to appear at a local meeting of believers by the, our head, Jesus Christ. For the sole purpose of worshiping the triune God in which the gospel is preached and taught so that believers are mutually encouraged to grow and to share their faith in this hostile moral wilderness we live in and to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs and make a melody in our heart to the Lord. We are called to pray for one another. We're called to praise. We're called to encourage one another to love and good works. This is the church. This is where we get our spiritual vitality. This is where we exercise our gifts. This is where we come and bring my concerns and you bring your concerns and we come together and we strengthen one another for the task. This is where we come and we lift up our eyes to that wonderful hill of Calvary and we are strengthened because that's where our help comes from. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read probably about 25 verses of scripture, starting in chapter 2. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, excuse me, before I go on, I'm going to probably ad lib a little bit as I'm going along to give some kind of structure. You understand what's going on here? So I'll read slow and so you can follow. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time, you were separated from Christ, you were lost, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you had no hope. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You were lost 
Gentile sins. But now in Christ Jesus, Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both Jews and Gentiles, as he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, by abolishing the law of Moses and the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jewish sinners. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ever, that all we, we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout the generations forever and ever. Amen. For next three verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, when I'm speaking about the church and I'm trying to express the way I feel about how important it is for Christians to fellowship, how important it is for Christians to live in the life of another Christian. And what I mean by this is, do this assessment of yourself. Does your life bring any value to another Christian? Does our life make another Christian's life feel important? That says a lot. And what Paul knew that. And Paul just taught on some of the most magnificent teaching there is in the New Testament. About Jews and Gentiles come together to form in one new man, the Christian church. There was no greater diversity in the ancient world than between a Jew and a Gentile. There was no greater diversity. But yet, this is God's plan to show off His glory. That though the diversity was so great and so wide, that God has the wisdom and the power to bring both people and bring peace. Why? Because both Jew and Gentiles are sinners. 
And they both need to have peace with God. And God didn't give... That's why there's no, this thing that all religions lead to God, you can forget about that. Understand something. Because only one religion can bring peace to every other religion, every other sinner. And that's Jesus Christ. And as all human beings come together and we recognize that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, then we'll start to have peace with one another because we have a common ground. We all have one Savior. We all have one God, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one unity of the faith. No man is greater, no, one, no one's worse. Understand something. No one's inferior, no one's superior. We all need one another. But as real as that is, and theoretically you know that is right because the Bible teaches us, but we also know that there's tension in our hearts. And that's why Paul in the third chapter is on bended knee. Because the ideal is in Scripture. But before we actually practice it out, there has to be intercession and prayer. And Paul is on bended knee because he knows for people to really grasp the depth and the height and the breadth and the width of God, this love, to know this love that surpasses comprehension, he knows that it would take the power of God to strengthen men on the inner man so they can walk in humility with one another. Because God is always dealing with the root. He's not concerned with just coming and raising our hands. He's not concerned with just coming and saying, God bless you, brother. He's not concerned with coming and saying, oh, I care for you, brother. First John says it great. He says this. He says, if you see your brother's need, if you see that your brother is hungry, if you see that your brother needs food, and you who possess the things of the world just say, God bless you and go your own way, how can you say you love your brother? As we read in chapter 4, that we are to walk gentle with each other, humble with each other, patient with each other, bearing with one another's faults, bearing with one another's failures, tolerating one and each other. Understand something. That takes a deep work of the Holy Spirit. Am I right? But that's what God calls us to. That's the Christian church. It's in that context that God is glorified. We can come here and sing all we want. We can have the best worship. We can have the best this. We can have the best that. But Jesus says the world would know you not by how you dance, not how you praise, not how you witness, not how you live. It's how you love. The world will recognize you by your love for one another. Jew and Gentile, where there once was great diversity, now are caring for each other's needs. We come together black and white, rich and poor, educated, uneducated. Makes no difference. And we come together and we minister to each other and we care for each other. Because why? This is why. Jesus Christ is not my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. How can I worship God and not meet the needs of my brothers and sisters? How can I? How can a Christian? The design 
over the weeks to come will be to address this issue for many different New Testament writers and small Testament writers to really get a, a greater comprehensive stance on what it means to be a Christian, what it means that Christ is our Lord and Savior. What does it mean that I, God has given me gifts? Why would God give me anything? Besides being saved, He gives us the ability to be used by Him in the life of other people. All of us have these gifts. It's our constant prayer that God would be glorified in our church in this manner. That we truly do have a heart one for another. And as the series is going on, I'll be speaking about church membership. I'll be speaking about the importance of being a member of a church. Now, church membership is not that we get together and you write your signature on something. Some churches do that and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a commitment, either by word, or signature, or showing up, or telling I'm here, I'm part of, this is where I want to worship, this is where I want to serve God. This is where I want God to be glorified. This is the importance of becoming, of, of, of being part of the local church. So we'll be speaking more about these dynamics as the weeks go on. But I, I please, I, I ask you to really listen to what was said today. I ask you to take it home, pray over it. Read Ephesians, six chapters, a good read. As I go through it a little bit next week, I'll be speaking out of this text again. And, uh, and I'll get to the finer points of what's going on. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the church is those who are called out of darkness and into the light, Father God. That you called us, Father God. To be our Father, who is up in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Father God. And you call people from so many diverse backgrounds to come and to minister to each other, Father God. To speak the truth in love, Father God. To build each other up, Father God. To hold each other accountable. To encourage, to strengthen, to edify, to admonish, to exhort, Father God in season and out of season to strengthen our faith Father God as iron sharpens iron Father God I thank you for all the gifts I thank you for all the talents that you have given this church Father God and I pray Father God and believe with all my heart that we have only scratching the surface Lord and I pray Father God as Paul prayed as my heart is bent before you right now that you bless this church in her inner man Father God that you strengthen us by your spirit Father God because the idea deal is so hard for us in our human flesh. But God, when we're filled with the Spirit, submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ, God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Father God. Yes, you are the God, Father God, that can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ever thought or imagined or even asked for by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, Father God. Paul knew that. I know that. We know that, Father God. And we're praying to you, Almighty God. We're not asking for a stone. And we're not asking for a scorpion. We're seeking. We're asking. We're knocking for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner man, Father God. So that you would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus for now and forevermore.